I think it's inspired by God, and I do think it's so with inactive. When you see Benjamin and Monica yourself, and then it makes you really want to realize that that father's not lying to you, but he's telling the truth. Just to start you both with the mind, some people are about some character. There's plenty of things, even if you don't believe in God, there's plenty of things in the Bible that can improve your life. I just say don't believe everything you do. Contemporary, the Bible, that's controversial. The Bible is still here. This book is almost 2,000 years old. It still exists for some reason. And to me, that stands out. That means something. It's not coincidence. Well, good morning, everybody. One of the questions we're going to be wrestling with this morning as we continue this series we've been doing called Explore God, where we've been looking at the big questions of faith. Uh, for those tuning in online, whether it be our podcast or on Facebook Live, good morning. We're glad you're with us on this Mother's Day. We had just uh, talked earlier how this really is a day to celebrate a lot of women because uh, whether a uh, woman is a mother or not, we have a lot of people who are pouring into our kids. Uh, whether they be teachers, caregivers, uh, and so we we honor you today uh, as you too display the likeness of God. Uh, but what we have looked at in the past weeks is we wrestled with these big questions, and obviously we came up with answers for every single one, right? Not necessarily every single one, but most of them. So does life have a purpose? We discussed that yes, life does have a purpose. And there's a purpose beyond just existence. And is there a God? We discussed it. Yeah, we believe that there is a God and that there is evidence out there uh, for people to see uh, that there is a God. And why does God allow pain and suffering? This is the one we didn't necessarily answer. We discussed lots of different options. This is the, the 
more difficult <coughs> one to, to figure out, isn't it? Um, and then we discussed, is Christianity too narrow? And we talked about some of the exclusive claims as well as the inclusive claims of Christianity. And then this past week, we discussed, is Jesus really God? And we looked at the evidence, and we looked at the different options, the logical options we have concerning Jesus. And we discussed that, yes, he really is God, and he says he is. This week, we're going to look at the Bible, and really wrestle with this question, is the Bible reliable? But before we do that, let's go to God in prayer, asking for guidance. So let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this day and this opportunity we have to gather in your name and worship. We pray for all of those who are traveling and ask that you would be with them. And we pray for all those mothers and pray that you would just uh, help them enjoy this day. Because really when it comes down to it, every day should be Mother's Day uh, with all the women who pour into us. And we thank you for them. And Lord, we ask your guidance as we look at the Bible, and we wrestle with this difficult question. And so we pray that you would guide us through your spirit. And Lord, I pray that if my words stray from yours, that they fall away and quickly be forgotten, and that your word, the truth, and your promise remain upon our hearts forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, and all the saints said, Amen. All right, so does anybody else in the room remember sword drills? Did anybody grow up in the church with sword drills? Anybody? Was I the only one? I guess I was. So let me explain. For those who aren't familiar with sword drills, sword drills are an exercise for humiliation for young children. That's the short of it. Uh, what, it what it was is that usually some pretentious adult, usually a Sunday school teacher, would stand in front and call out a passage of scripture, you know, uh, book, chapter, verse, and then all the children would race to find it in their own Bible. And once you found a passage, you'd raise it up in the air. And the first person to do that won the sword drill. Why is this humiliating? Well, when you're slow like me, you were never the first kid. And then let's face it, for those who grew up with sword drills, there was always that kid who cheated who put in the tabs in their Bible with all the book names. And so they were able to find stuff really quickly. And then you may be wondering, okay, we're talking about a Bible, so why are we calling it a sword drill? Well, that comes from the New Testament imagery from Ephesians, when we talk about the armor of God. We hear about all of the different pieces of armor, and one is the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. But not just from that, but also from Hebrews chapter 4, when we hear that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. There's where we get the name Sorger. This was confusing to me the first time I heard in Sunday school that we were going to be doing a sword drill. At first, I was really excited. I was thinking, a sword drill? This is awesome. You know, I was expecting maybe we'd have replica Roman swords or something. And, we, you know, it was for the sake of history, we were going to work on our carrying and, 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 and striking. And, you know, they'd be made of foam, so nobody would get hurt. And I was sorely mistaken because I found out I was wrong, and that was not a sword drill at all. The sword drills aren't the only thing confusing about the Bible, is it? 
There's a lot of confusing stuff in the Bible. Does anybody here claim to understand everything that's in the Bible? Yeah, I don't think anybody ever raised their hand. It's confusing, isn't it? And when you first start reading it, it's weird. I mean, there's all these weird passages. Yes, Ellen? Do we have to really know? Can't we just accept? That's a good question. Do we really have to know? Can we just accept? I'd say some people can, some people can't. And but either way, it's it's it, it can be difficult, right? To to try to understand passages. And there's some weird stuff in the Bible. There's difficult language. You would think God, when sending His Word down, would send it in perfect English that we can all understand today, right? Well, we would form with hope, but that's not how it happened. I mean, I remember even being told in church growing up that the Bible was an instruction manual. Well, that's great and all, and I think there's some good instruction in there, but let's face it, it's a difficult instruction manual to read. In fact, I think it would be easier to put together furniture from Ikea than it would be to read the Bible as a pure instruction manual at times. I mean, what kind of instruction manual includes stories of scandalous incest? What about... Brutal violence, attempted genocide, teen pregnancy, bears mauling young boys. Yes, second Kings, check it out. Or demon possession. Makes for an interesting instruction manual, don't you think? Can you imagine if you ran across those things in your IKEA manual when you're trying to build your hoogan or whatever it is? The Bible's confusing and it's difficult to understand. And if it was written by so many different people, could it possibly be accurate? Being written over a span of thousands of years, can it be reliable? Is it helpful? See, there's varying perspectives on this good book, the good book that we call the Bible. Admit that all of us have a perspective on the Bible. Every, every person in this room has a perspective on the Bible of how you would already answer this question. And everybody does. For some, it's a very familiar book. We've read it, and there are parts that we understand or grasp and we're continuing to learn about, just as there's parts that still confuse us. For others, it's foreign and maybe even frightening. And many have never even cracked it, but have an opinion on it, never having read it, but just heard about it. If you've been reading through the Bible for a long time, you may think back to those early days of trying to figure it all out as you just started reading it. And for some of you, you're just now beginning. Where you are, this is a great message for you. So let's take a closer look at this book we call the Bible. The Bible, though hard to understand at times, is a beautiful collection of books. It's not a novel written how we might read a novel with all these different chapters. It is made up of different books, but they tell the same consistent story throughout. And here's, here's uh, your uh, spoiler alert. It is very, very reliable. But you don't have to just take my word for it. In Christ the Word, we believe as a church that the Bible is, and this is the wording that we chose to use in plain English about what we believe about the Bible. We said, we believe the Bible is 
God's true and authoritative message of love, perfectly recorded and accurately translated by the servants, it is presented in a multi-author collection of 66 books written in various languages that are tied together by a common thread. We believe that the Bible is authoritative and therefore very reliable. Well, let's examine why that is. So let's, let's look at a few of the facts about the Bible. First, it's a collection of 66 different books. 66 different books written from a time period from about 1500 B.C. to about 180, or if you use the more politically correct terms now, it's C.E. and B.C.E., so Common Era and then before Common Era. But about 1500 B.C. to 100 A.D. was when all of this was written. There are approximately about from best that we can figure out, 40 different authors. And it is originally written in three different languages. Anybody want to venture to guess in three different languages? Uh, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Right. Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Anybody in here fluent in any three of those languages? Didn't think so. <laughs> I've studied them. Can't say I'm anywhere close to fluent. But in this, we have the first 39 books, or what we would call the Old Testament, and then the next would be what we would call the New Testament. The Old Testament being the law of Moses, the history of the Jewish people, and then the New Testament being the life of Jesus and beyond. So let's take a closer look at the composition of the Bible. Because it is confusing, since it's not just one novel, yet we're saying it's one story. So what are we talking about? So there is the Old and the New Testament. The Old Testament is significantly longer than the New Testament. So if you were to break it up in half, you would still be in the Old Testament. In fact, most of the time, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you take, take a Bible and cut it in half, almost most of the time you're going to land in the book of Psalms. A little trick in case you have to do a sword drill. That's good to know if you know the orders of the books. You can always land in Psalms. But we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament being prior to Jesus, the New Testament being the life of Jesus and after. And yet, these two testaments can be further subdivided. So let's talk about those subdivisions. First, we have the Torah. The Torah would be also known as the Pentateuch, which is the first five books. Pentateuch means five scrolls. And so the first five books, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, make up the Torah, the book of law. And then, if you saw the video earlier, we learned about the Nevi'im, which is the prophets, and so this would be Joshua, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and on. And these are foretelling of history and things to come. And then after that, we have the Ketubim, which means writings. And this would be the book of Psalms, which is a book of Hebrew poetry and songs that were sung, as well as Proverbs, which are, can you guess, 
Proverbs. Thus, it's very creative name. And then you have like the book of Job, uh, the book of Ruth, Chronicles, and etc. going all the way to the end of the Old Testament. Altogether, they tell of Israel's birth as a nation. They're, you want to skip to the next one for me? Or you can get those two. Okay, there we go. Uh, all of these foretell the history, uh, they tell the birth of the nation of Israel, the history of their land, which is uh, Israel Palestine. I think I might need you to take over for me. My iPad's not working. You can leave it there. I'll let you know when we change. Gotcha. And so all of this is uh, happening in Israel Palestine of modern era today. And it also tells of Israel's exile from their land, as well as their return to it and eventual rebuilding around the city of Jerusalem. Furthermore, it's the story of Israel's origin through Abraham, as well as God's promised blessing of all the nations through this messianic king, so this Messiah that they foretell about, who would one day come. And at the end of the Old Testament, as we saw in the video earlier, has yet to come. That's where the Old Testament ends. But then we move to the New Testament, which is the 27 books at the end, which talk about this emerging movement started by Jesus of Nazareth. And as you can see on the screen, it starts with the Gospels. The Gospel is a Greek word that means good news. It's the first four books of the Bible. So what are the first four books? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so these are four different accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. This is where we learn all about Jesus' life. That's why they call it the Gospels. This is the good news of Jesus. This is the guy that the Old Testament was promising, this Messiah, this Messianic King. Here is Jesus. This is good news. And then we're followed by the book of Acts. And the book of Acts, believed to be written by the same author of the Gospel of Luke, so sometimes we'll hear it called Luke-Acts. It's a continuation of the story. This is the birth of the church and the early ministry of everything that happened after Jesus was born, died, and rose again. This is where the early movement of the church began to start. And then after Acts, we move to the epistles. Epistles is a Greek word meaning, can you guess it? Letters. Letters. We're reading somebody's mail when we're reading a large part of the Old Testament. These are epistles. These are letters that were written uh, uh, to 21 early, there were 21 early letters written from teams of leaders of Jesus to appointed apostles in different places. And the authors of this is we have, Paul wrote 13 of these letters. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, was one of the biggest contributors to the New Testament. Peter wrote two letters. John wrote three. James, Jacob wrote one. Jude wrote one. And then there's an anonymous who wrote the book of Hebrews. We're not really certain who wrote that letter. And then we end off the New Testament with the book of Revelation. Say with me real quick. Revelation. Don't add an S. Revelation. It is one revelation that is not plural. It is one revelation. It's not multiple ones. One. Sorry, it's a little pet peeve of mine when I hear people say revelations. No, there's just one. It's one revelation. The whole book tells that. And it's the capstone of the New Testament, kind of finishing it off the bookend 
It was written by John, and it's his prophetic revealing vision of the apocalypse addressed to the seven churches. If you've been at Christ's Word for a little bit, we actually did a study, a sermon series, on those seven churches from that part of the book of Revelation. These last 27 books make up the New Testament and were written by eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, documenting his ministry and explaining God's plan to bring about his kingdom. It also includes these letters and how to live out the gospel. So does that make sense? That's kind of some of the interesting information. Me and you, if you grew up in the church, perhaps you knew all of this. But for those who don't, it's very confusing because we hear we talk about the Bible and then you've never been told that it's actually made up of different books. I know many people. I know uh, when we were in college, Kate didn't grow up reading the Bible. She had heard many of the stories. And so how is she to know or anybody to know that there's book, chapter, verse, and that's how you find stuff? It's really confusing. You show up to a first Bible study and someone's saying, all right, we're going to turn to Jude chapter 2, verse 3. And you never opened a Bible and you're thinking, what? So this explains a little bit of that. But all of that being said, the argument I made earlier was this is one big story. So if you want to simplify the understanding of the big story, it can be simplified as this. Four distinct segments going throughout all of Scripture. You have the story of creation. You have the fall of man. You have the redemption of people. And then you have the new creation of Revelation. That is the overarching, what we might call the meta-narrative that is over everything. It's the thread that runs through all the books from beginning to end, and everything supports that, even though it is different authors, different time periods. All of it fits into this overarching meta-narrative. Creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. <coughs> this all sounds great, but how can we be confident that this is all reliable? Well, let's look at it from different segments. First, let's look at prophecy. So the first being prophecy. Some 1,800 prophetic statements can be verified or refuted, but none to date have been refuted from Scripture. That's 1,800 different prophecies. We've read all kinds of prophetic prophecies regarding individuals like Abraham would have a son, and we learn that later Abraham does have a son, even at the right old age. It's interesting that we hear about different rulers like Cyrus of Persia, that a hundred years before Cyrus assumed the throne, his name was mentioned in Isaiah 45, verse 1, and it was recorded before he ever even came to power. Or we learn about nations such as the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, the length of Judah's captivity, or empires regarding the fall of Babylon, and cities such as the destruction of Tyre. All of these being prophecies of things that would be to come and can be verified. And we discussed last week that there are all sorts of prophecies concerning Jesus, the foretelling of his birth, of naming a real time in history and a real place that he would be born. All of these are prophecies pointing to the scriptures as being trustworthy and reliable. 
But let's not just look at it from prophecies. What about there being some textual evidence? So, textual evidence. We have more high-quality copies of the text than any other historical document in history from antiquity. A common misunderstanding of the Bible by both Christians and non-Christians alike is the mistaken notion that the Bible is a translation upon translation upon translation, leading to some to believe that the end result is just garbled and it hardly represents the original. You know, when you play the game of telephone and whatever you said, the first person's ear, when you get to the end, it's nothing like it. That's a common misunderstanding of the Bible. This can't be further from the truth. Translations such as the King James, or we have the New International, the English Standard Version, are all derived from existing copies of old manuscripts. So how reliable are the manuscripts that all the Bibles are translated from? Well, the evidence is overwhelming and seldom disputed. Manuscripts prepared from different individuals spread over various parts of the Middle East and the Mediterranean region, and they agree remarkably with each other. Also, the manuscripts agree with the Septuagint, which was the which was translated to Greek from Hebrew, possibly around the third century BC. That was a long time ago. And then we found the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in 1947, which also provided profound testimony to the reliability of the centuries of transmission of the biblical text. As every Old Testament book found was virtually word for word with today's Bible. And the scribes who were in charge of the Old Testament texts dedicated their lives to preserving these texts, accuracy, and when they made copies, because they didn't have photocopies back then, right? They didn't have a Google Drive to save it on and print out in a cloud. It was a different kind of cloud back then. So they went to great lengths as scribes to guarantee the reliability of copies as they were handwritten and illustrated. And this is illustrated by the fact that they would count every letter and every word and record it in the margins so that things, such things as the middle letter and word of the Torah. If a single error was found, that copy was immediately destroyed and they would start over. And then the New Testament manuscript evidence is even more impressive with 24,000 known copies. 5,366, which are complete of the entire New Testament, instead of just being segments of it. And some that date as early as the 2nd and 3rd centuries. This, the manuscript authority greatly surpasses all other writings of antiquity. So I just want to give you a, a, a little chart here to show you the reliability of the text. As you see in the table, Homer's Iliad, so anybody have to read Homer's Iliad? The most renowned book of ancient Greece is a very distant second to the New Testament in manuscript support. And look at that. 24,000 known copies of the New Testament, only 643 of Homer And that's second place. Then you go down to Sophocles or Aristotle or Caesar during the Gaelic Wars, and you can see the numbers there. We uphold those as as text, historical texts that we have all studied at various times throughout school. But I just want to point out, look at the New Testament. Does it have support? 
textual support? I would say that it does. The New Testament even fares better than the 37 plays written by William Shakespeare in the 17th century. So that wasn't even as long ago as Let's move on to the next point. We talked about prophecy and textual evidence. What about self-declaration? The text itself claims authority. Let's go back and look at 2 Timothy that Kate read earlier. Let's look at verse 16. What does it have to say about itself? It says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's what scripture says about itself. But what do others say about self-declaration? Mortimer Adler has this to say. Among the major religions of the world, only three religions claim to have supernatural foundation to be found in a sacred scripture that purports to be a divine revelation. The three religions distinguished by this claim are Judaism, Christianity, and the religion of Islam. Among the other religions, only some claim to have logical, factual truth, but the truth they claim to have is of human, not divine, origin. What about our last point? If we discuss prophecy, textual evidence, self-declaration, what about cooperation? Well, here's an interesting point. You don't hear people say they regret following the words of Scripture. I've heard people say they regretted getting involved with a certain church or ministry or maybe following a certain leader, but I've never heard anyone tell me that they regret following the words of Scripture. You don't hear people say that 10 years ago I decided to read and follow Scripture and build my business, nurture my marriage, raise my kids, handle my money, and take care of my body according to the wisdom of Scripture, and I completely regret it. <laughs> the last point is universality, or imitation, some might say. No other sacred Scriptures invite all people of all. They're highly exclusive. We talked about the exclusivity of Christianity, and there are exclusive claims, but it is a very universal exclusive claim of calling all people of all races, of all walks of life. You know, we even see it in Genesis. If we turn to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God tells one man, I will bless you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the very first book of the Bible. All peoples will be blessed through you. Already in Genesis, it's a foretelling of the entire creation being called to God. So there's the evidence. What are you pondering in your own heart? When you're wondering about the reliability of the Bible, consider these facts. But more than that, remember that the Bible is God's love letter to you. Open it, read it, and consider how God wants you to live out his kingdom call. Imagine with me for a moment. What if? What if every one of us left here <coughs> confident of the Bible's reliability 
and excited to live out its ways. Imagine what our church would look like. Imagine your business, your family, your relationships. If we truly believe that the Bible is reliable and seek to live after its precepts, do you think those areas of your life will be worse off or better off? The bottom line is this. The Bible is more than a book. It's so much more than a book. It's God's love letter to all humanity. Whether we choose to believe it and find it reliable or not, it is still God's love letter to us. We have more reason to trust its claims than we have any other book in ancient history. We can trust the Bible because of prophecy, history, integrity, and what it's done in people's lives. What do you do? How will you live out your life in response to that question? Only you can answer that. Let us go to God in prayer. God, we pray that you would convict us as we look at your word. Lord, there is a lot of evidence out there for your love, for your existence, for your holy word, but we also know that we can't truly come to appreciate and understand it without your special revelation in our life. So we ask that your spirit would be upon us, and that as we seek to share this good news with anybody who would listen, we Pray that your spirit would prepare their hearts, prepare their minds to hear, to hear this good news and hear it as good. Because, Lord, we're not trying to convert the world so that we can boost our numbers. Lord, we want to see this world changed by you and through your word. Because we see how good that is in our own lives and we want it. Lord, we pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Savior, and all the saints. Amen.